silence in room. Jorgen adds, so you can see why reinsurance hoping for some climate mitigation. We can't afford for a world to end. No one laughs. Some things we can mitigate, some we can't. Some things we can adapt to, others we can't. Need to clarify which is which. Mainly need to tell adaptation advocates they're full of shit. Bunch of economists, humanities professors, they have no idea what talking about. Adaptation, just a fantasy. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Seymour. We began with a short selection from the award-winning audiobook edition of Kim Stanley Robinson's 2020 cli-fi novel, Ministry for the Future. The scholars David Ketterer and more recently Nathaniel Williams have argued that Mark Twain is an originary figure in American speculative fiction, and especially technocratic fiction, the genre traditions in which Robinson also belongs. Much as contemporary cli-fi novelists do, in many of the posthumously published manuscripts which became Fables of Man and Which Was the Dream, Twain peers into the near future and imagines cataclysmic dystopias, brought about by unchecked technological progress, unbridled money lust, hubristic nationalism, and uncorrectable human nature, of which Twain says there is literally nothing worse. In his final years, Twain openly fantasized about Western civilization's imminent and self-destructive collapse, from which he plainly hoped it would not be revived. While Robinson shares Twain's capacity to imagine the complex collision of transnational forces through voracious reading in the sciences, political economy, and cultural theory, he is, thankfully, less fatalistic. And it is this cautious optimism which makes Robinson's Ministry for the Future a novel appropriate for our occasion. March 30 is the worldwide teach-in on climate and justice. Schools and other participating organizations have been charged with moving beyond climate despair. In this episode, I'm discussing Robinson's novel as well as a broader corpus of climate literature with three scholars who are trying real hard to see a future. Sherry Marie Harrison is Associate Professor of English and Director of Interdisciplinary Studies at University of Missouri, as well as the author of Difficult Subjects, Negotiating Sovereignty in Postcolonial Jamaican Literature, and co-editor of the forthcoming Rutledge Companion to the novel. You may remember her from previous popular episodes on HBO's Lovecraft Country and Exterminate All the Brutes. Anna Kornblue is Professor of English and Director of Graduate Studies at University of Illinois Chicago, as well as founder of the V21 Collective and author of The Order of Forms, Realizing Capital, and Marxist Film Theory and Fight Club. Recently, she joined us for episodes about the personal narrative and the Showtime serial, Billions. Finally, Men Hyung Song is Professor of English and Director of Asian American Studies at Boston College. His previous books include The Children of 1965 on Writing and Not Writing as an Asian American and Strange Future, Pessimism and the 1992 LA Riots. But his most recent book, published just two months ago, is Climate Lyricism, 
a demystifying but not defeatist assessment of climate fiction and other emergent forms of climate literature. You may download the book for free from Duke University Press. Look for links, as well as more about our guests and a complete bibliography of works discussed in this episode at marktwainstudies.com backslash ministry for the future. My, my first question is for Sherry. One of the first things I ever read of yours mm-hmm. was a chapter in actually Rachel Greenwald Smith's collection uh, called Reading the Novel of Migrancy. And I was thinking about it in relationship to ministry for the future. And specifically, at the very end of that essay, you say you defined the novel of migrancy earlier as a harbinger of emerging forms of transnational organization. And that seems relevant here, right? But at the end, you said the novel of migrancy is not just about trying to make the invisible visible although it's certain, that certainly is one of the goals, is also crucially about limbing or seeking to call into this existence without really representing conditions for a global framework that does not yet exist. Put in the most direct way, we do not yet have systems in place that would allow us to imagine paths to security for those living in precarious situations across the globe. Did I write that really? You did. You did. That's kind of great. It strikes me as, as incredibly relevant for thinking about ministry for the future. Obviously, many of the responses to this novel have been this is an attempt to fulfill the sort of, you know, Jamesonian challenge. Can we imagine a future after capitalism, right? Or is it easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism? Many people have commented on this being a sort of answer to that challenge, whether that was ever even something that Jameson's ever said. And it strikes me that you're thinking about the novel of migrancy frames that in a little bit of different terms, that we need to think about frameworks, institutions that get us to this transnational organization. And that a lot of the novels that you were reading as you were writing that essay, which is framed within the context of neoliberal literature, you felt didn't have access to those kinds of imaginaries. Do you think ministry offers us something that is either an extension of or gets beyond what you see in the novel of migrancy to start to offer a potential for institutions that exist Mm -hmm. that allow for us to move truly transnationally, not just through the rhetoric of globalization? It absolutely does realize some of the things that I wanted to see in the writing or that I was seeing in writing by like Chimamanda Adichie and Teju Cole, who I talk about in, in that essay in particular, but who were being read in sort of more symptomatic ways as people representing particular aspects of culture in this identitarian way. And not that that isn't important, but they were also doing something more complicated in terms of revealing global systems at work. And I think one of the spaces where global systems at work is most apparent or has been most apparent in literature is through immigration processes, through the processes that are put in place for people to be registered as asylum seekers, immigrants, migrants. A lot of the books that I was reading before the Kim Stanley Robinson novel thought through larger institutions and systems like immigration, like the movement of people and money across borders in ways that 
got us towards how things function on a global scale and how things function on a global scale that could impact everybody. When I read this one, the thing that really struck me and the thing that made me really want to talk about it was it did do that actual realization of how all kinds of things that are functioning on on a global scale, it did provide a framework for thinking about global functioning in different spaces. You have the juxtaposition of what Mary is able to do with the ministry in terms of concrete, concrete, I don't even know if concrete is how I want to describe it, but in terms of more official things. And then you have the example of India, which is, you know, there's that great paragraph at the end of one of the chapters that says, you know, we've taken care of one seventh of the population with these remediations that we've done here. And it seems to be in combination. Climate crisis provides the occasion for us to think about how all of the global systems that are at work need to either be dismantled or in KSR's imagination, refocused in more productive, utopian ways. We're all going to fly around in dirigibles in the next 10 years instead of jet travel. That's a really great connection to to some stuff that I had already been thinking about, Matt, that I hadn't gotten to yet. But I think the gesture at the end of that chapter that wants to imagine what kinds of global systems we're living through, and not just in terms of repressive ones, a thing that always prompts me is 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 Anna's work that refuses to 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 be that refuses to give it all up, like refuses to be overtly pessimistic about things and trying to think about futurity in productive ways that have to do with possibility. And I think this absolutely does that. You begin that chapter with a, a hat tip to one of Anna's essays. One of the things that Anna sort of asked us to do in that essay is to move beyond thinking of critique as denunciatory, as debunking, and instead think of critique as something that is productive and indeed utopian. Mm -hmm. Is there an extent to which Ministry for the Future fulfills or represents or epitomizes that idea of novel as critique, which you were sort of putting forward in that essay, and which I know is part of your thinking about what are the potentials for, for critical theory in the period of too late capitalism, as you have put it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not just because of KR's education and his fluency in all these critical discourses. It's because of what he thinks novels can do. And then specifically, it's because of how he's sort of mobilizing the generic non-science fiction quality of this, right? That it's so close in the present, right? It was written in 2020. Its events take place in 2025. Mm -hmm. or, or it's catastrophic. They, they kick off in 2025. Yeah. Catastrophic loss of 20 million lives takes place in 2025. So there's that just hyper proximity. And there's that use of the novel form to think about what's already present here and what are already our institutions and what are already our logics. I think we're very attached to this idea. It's been sort of framing the whole climate conversation for a long time in literary studies that we can't imagine the kind of forms that we need. And I think what's so critically interesting about this novel is that it doesn't take that approach. It says like, 
look, we actually can imagine because people are already surviving climate catastrophe right now. People are already struggling. They're already impeding pipelines. They're already fleeing underwater territories in Micronesia. People are, are, are already sort of figuring out how to survive and how to fight. And also that there are existing institutions and existing forms that, as Sherry says, can be refocused. I think that's a really, truly dialectical position. I think it's a really interesting formalist position. And I think it relates to his willingness to use the novel form to make this critical intervention. Another thing that I read recently was one of the Ghosh books on climate change, where he said literature just did not have this capacity. And like the whole time that I'm reading this, I'm like, what? Uh. And it was before I read this novel, like right after I read a collection of prize winning essays in South Africa, and the entire collection is about precisely that, Anna, like imagining life amidst climate crisis, remediating climate crisis in ways that were surprising to me because it's just like, oh, here is fiction that's imagining this. Yeah. Maybe the corpus that Ghosh was reading didn't necessarily do that work, but, you know, a striking thing nonetheless about how we talk about books like this or the possibilities embedded in forms that try to do this, this particular thing. They're forms that try to coordinate, right? Like the novel is like a ministry, right? And so our kind of different levels of representation that we get here are so crucial to uh, the position that we do, we can imagine it. We have tools, <laughs> we have forms, we have the will to freedom and the will to flourish and the will to struggle. What we don't quite have is a, you know, political concatenation or political will. And that's also why it becomes so interesting that this book is really interested in different modalities of political action and what can and can't be represented. I really like what you say about literature, fiction being a sort of ministry in itself too, especially because of how it reflects all of the different forms that are in this. So, so like yeah. newspaper articles, logs from the security people who are guarding Mary, Mary's musings, you know, like we have like the traditional narratives between Mary and um, Frank. Frank. Yeah. One of my favorites is the interview with the surly, the very bright guy and the one who is just like, no, yeah. a catalog of different forms of representing the conversations and the ways that we can engage. That is about how literature is coming to terms and accounting for and thinking through. Yeah. As somebody who has a, a real soft spot for the modernist miscellany novel <laughs> and specifically John Dos Passos, who, who Kim Stanley Robinson mm -hmm. cites as one mm -hmm. of his impetuses or inspirations for this novel. Mm -hmm. I I did want to bring men in here, but I think both Anna and Sherry have been leading us down some pretty optimistic paths surrounding the potential for the novel form. I'm going to presume that men would not agree with what Ghosh says that literature has nothing to offer us for thinking about and imagining the climate crisis. In fact, I, I know that in climate lyricism, you have uh, some suggestions about literary forms that offer us help in dealing with the psychology, the culture, and the politics of climate change. However, in that book, you are also somewhat skeptical of narrative and of this sort of emerging genre of climate fiction to which certainly Ministry for the Future belongs. I was hoping maybe first you would sort of summarize what do you see as the problems with narrative for the politics of climate change? And then does Ministry for the Future fall into those problems or does it thwart them in some way? Let me just start by saying that I don't think Amitav Ghosh himself believes his own argument that literature <laughs> doesn't have anything to offer on this subject. You know, uh, he, he immediately went and wrote a, a, a novel 
that did exactly what he said novels don't do. Mm -hmm. I think there's some disagreement about the quality of that novel. But actually, then he goes on to write Nutmeg's Curse, which is just a brilliant, brilliant narrative that captures kind of the long duration of events that have led us to this present moment. I think Nutmeg's Curse is actually one of the great works of mm -hmm. climate literature, maybe not climate fiction, but climate literature. Mm -hmm. So he himself is showing us actually how his original argument in The Great Derangement is wrong. I clearly agree with the idea that, that Anna and Sherry has suggested that narrative and literature have a lot to offer. I, I happen to think that we, we should be paying more attention to poetry than the novel form, that the novel form itself, especially in the ways in which it's been organized around endings, isn't necessarily the best form right now for the kind of moment we embody where endings are so hard to imagine because we are in so many ways in the middle of things. My critique of climate fiction, a lot of it, at least one critique I would offer of climate fiction is that it is too preoccupied with endings. It's too preoccupied with catastrophe, disaster, apocalypse, which is a, a kind of continuation of its fascination with the end. Somehow, you know, the story only makes sense when you reach the end of it. And, and then you can retroactively look and see the design that went into the story, which is totally the, the wrong way, I think, to approach this. I've been also thinking a lot about what science has to offer us. Uh, I just finished teaching a class class with an oceanographer on climate crisis and storytelling. It was a big lecture class for 75 first-year students. And one of the things I've learned is that in some ways, narrative is really behind the science. A unfortunate thing that has happened because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that it totally knocked out of the news the latest working group report of the International Panel on Climate Change. The new working group, working group two report from the IPCC started to introduce a new concept. Anyone who's been paying attention to these documents knows uh, what a representative climate pathway is, RCPs, which is trying to make sense of different scenarios where like solar radiation or radiative force would have different kinds of environmental impacts and trying to imagine, you know, like where we've been able to stop the global temperature increases by stopping emissions relatively soon, as opposed to like the worst case scenario where we just keep on doing what we've been doing or increasing, right, the amount of pollution. So to, to complement what was deliberately just a kind of exercise and looking at heating and its connection to the environment, the new IPCC report was trying to help popularize something called shared socioeconomic pathways or SSPs. They are trying then not only to think about heating and its effects on the environment, but also trying to understand different scenarios where changes in social activity and economic functioning on a global scale would have different outcomes for us. I was looking at it last night as I was preparing. There's a really brilliant passage in the novel where Mary is talking to someone and they're actually asking her, like as a ministry, like, what are you doing looking into the future? What can you see? And she says, we can only model scenarios. We track what has happened and graph trajectories in things we can measure. And then we postulate that the things we can measure will either stay the same or grow or shrink. And then the response is, so you know, I mean, in your exercises, is there any scenario whatsoever in which there won't be more heat waves that kill millions of people? And she says, yes. 
So the science is very clear that there's actually multiple pathways and they've modeled them. The IPCC has introduced five different pathways. The first is the most optimistic. It's the sustainability pathway. We become a more integrated global society. We start to share our resources equitably and we work with more deliberation to develop technologies that replace fossil fuel use as well as address the fossil fuels that have already been emitted. It's a best case scenario and it's not bad. It's really not bad. There's the middle of the road where we do some of the things that the first scenario offers, but do some new things, but continue to do things that we're doing. It's terrible, but it's manageable. Like we could survive that. It's not the nightmare scenarios that a lot of climate fiction imagines. And then there's there's several others. The third and fourth are pretty bad. <laughs> One is we we turn our back on each other, go into regional rivalry and just fight each other, you know, for the remaining resources. As you can imagine, that's a bad, bad scenario. There's another scenario where inequality just increases. And so you've got a few countries that do really well. And then everyone who's doing worse and worse and worse, as you can imagine, lots of political unrest, bad, bad scenario. And then there's actually a weird fifth one where we continue to engage globally. Markets function really well. People work together well. Inequality goes down, but it's all based on continued fossil fuel use. Somehow, I, I don't actually, I need to go back and look at this more closely because it really feels like they're saying this is not a bad scenario, but it seems to me that would still be a really bad bad scenario. So I guess I could say like one out of five is like the good scenario that they're outlining here, which isn't too bad. I, I do have to say, though, that with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it is scrambling geopolitical relationships very rapidly in a way that's totally unpredictable. The New York Times had a terrific article that just came out about how the crisis in Ukraine might actually accelerate a process of countries turning their back on globalization. And I'm not actually a fan of globalization as it is configured today. On the other hand, an anti-globalization movement led by reactionary right-wing ethno-nationalists will definitely take us down the SSP3 route, which is regional rivalry. And that is actually one of the worst case scenarios that the IPCC seems to be imagining for us. So the science is actually much more interesting than a lot of the climate fiction, which seems so hung up only on the worst case scenarios. And on that basis alone, I really admire what Robinson is trying to do, not only in this novel, but I think in a string of novels that go back generations. And, mm. you know, if you've, if, you, if you've been a fan of his fiction and you go back to his earlier work, what, what is that series called? Science on the Beltway or Science on the Potomac? It was like four novels. The series was called Science in the Capital, and it came out between 2004 and 2007. About climate change policy. And the heroes were the, uh, I believe, was the National Science Foundation. Mm. And I just love that also bureaucrats are always the heroes of his narratives. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is something that he's been thinking hard about. And in many ways, I think he's doing this because he is in conversation with the climate science more than a lot of other writers are. He's reading these reports. I mean, the one, one critique maybe I'd have of this one in particular, I think as his career has progressed, is that Robinson has less and less interested actually in fiction. He really wants to be an essayist. And Ministry for the Future reads like five policy papers in a trench coat and not a novel. 
Oh, I disagree. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist the imagery no, of that. No, no, no. Go, Anna. Go. <laughs> well, okay, because you're absolutely right. Like, why is it a novel and not a white paper, right? I mean, we have models even of these kinds of white papers coming out. And I think it has to do with what you're pointing to about these epistemic paradigms of like, okay, science actually is good at playing out scenarios. They're good at future casting. Our problem is not future casting. Our problem is not cause and effect, right? So that might put some pressure on plotting uh, for novels, right? And there is a kind of question of, you know, does anything happen in this, <laughs> this novel? But our problem is where is political agency and where is political will? And I think that he absolutely is invested in a project which isn't about trying to personalize climate disaster so that that somehow convinces people or trying to extremize climate disaster so that that somehow motivates people. It's a project about coordination, coordinated consciousness, federation, different modalities of communication and cooperation. And that's why it's so, so, so important that it's a novel and not a white paper, because the monologism and the monolingualism of white paper, the unit discourse there, the uniglossia is totally not adequate to the kinds of collaboration that would make political will. So the formal structures of the third person, <laughs> the formal structures of the first person that is impersonal, right? The carbon atom and history and the market and like these perspectives that aren't about individual people. The formal structures of focalization of people who we don't even know who they are. It's not just just passes multiple focalization. It's like these constant switching of registers. And then, you know, the kind of heteroglossia that Sherry mentioned of these, you know, different discursive types. Like these are all experiments and representation, even as, as they define the ministry, right? We are defending all living creatures, present and future, who cannot speak for themselves. And, and that is a thing that is very out of favor as an epistemic position, especially with humanists. But it's really super important to politics. Making a vision <laughs> that is articulated by the people who are in the position to articulate and having people connect to that and join up to that. So this is the use of novelistic form to try to foment political will, which is the problem. The problem is not that we can't envision the future. The problem is not that we don't know the facts. And the problem is actually not that we don't have a wide variety of available technological, <laughs> political, financial, social solutions. We do have these forms. It's not a lack of imagination. It's a lack of mobilization. And this modality of novel, this co federated, coordinated, conjunctive, heteroglossic, heterofocal thing is a, an effort to practice that. And I think it's really important that it's not a white paper for that reason. I don't want to forget that I want to come back to both the, the form and psychology of eschatology that Min referenced very early in his answer, and I think is probably interesting to all of us. So don't let me forget about that. But following up on what both Min and Anna just said, one of the unexpected things that I found in the novel was a kind of account of interdisciplinarity. Before we started recording, I mentioned how I had the misconception that this novel might have had more, you know, popular success, more sales than it actually appears that it has had thus far. But maybe that's not a problem. It seems to be very popular in the Academy. You know what, though, Matt? Like, I'd never heard of Kim Stanley Robinson before. Please edit that out. No. Um, but this is the this is the first time that this author has this is the first book that he sort of made it into my literary orbit. Yeah. I like to think I read pretty widely. 
And so, yeah, of course, it was because of how much people who I, I, I respect their work and I'm greatly admiring of their work who started to talk about it on social media, which is why I was like, all right, let me pick this up and read it. It might not necessarily be about the popular circulation, but there's something about how it circulated in academic circles. I don't know, maybe akin to Sally Rooney novels, but, um, you know, something of a similar sort of dispersal. Like when I, when I said to Andy at some point, have you heard of this Kim Stanley Robinson person? And he looked at at me like, what do you mean? <laughs> yes, of course I have. I'm going to read this one novel. And he's just like, oh, the Mars trilogy. And he starts going off on all kinds of things. And, you know, I realize what I've gotten myself into. But there is another space of dispersal here or distribution mm -hmm. that um, yeah. I don't think others of his books have 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 penetrated in, in quite the same way. And, and that's kind of what our conversation has drawn out for me. And in, in the chapter that that I'm I've recently written about it, one of the things I focus on is this account of inter interdisciplinarity. And as you say, it may be possible of thinking that, that the crossover audience here doesn't have to be a general one, mm -hmm. but rather the crossover audience is, as Min says, right, between literature professors and economists and climate scientists, as Anna says, finding a way to make us talk to one another, both through and with and in spite of our disciplinary vocabularies. One of the things that you see in the sort of miscellany aspects early in the novel, they read these accounts of their meetings, read like a faculty meeting, right? Like <laughs> yeah. They can't find ways to talk to one another, right? These are very experienced experts in their fields. They have a lot going for them, and yet they can't agree on anything because they can't even agree on the sort of foundational knowledge, the priors, like they can't get on the same page. And yet, over the course of the novel, they do. In the space of the novel, this is one of the moments where that was really funny to me, where humanists and economists get put in the same sentence. Like, <laughs> that says it, all of these people together are trying to figure this out and they're just bumbling it. And this is like the first time that, you know, you're sort of in this space with all of these different people listed and you're just like, oh, he wants us all to talk together. I'm sorry, I interrupted. But no, that's, a, that's exactly one of the moments I talk about in my essay, because mm -hmm. it, it was shocking for me, even as somebody who does literature and economics, to have economists and humanities professors told they are simultaneously the problem. Does this novel show us as part of the, what he sees as a sort of triangulation of fields? Climate scientists, economists, that probably doesn't surprise anyone, but also critical theorists, right? That these three groups of people in some ways have to become collaborators in order to achieve what both Anna and Men talk about, the changing of the political will, not just the realization of the potential past, not just the achievement of the technology, not just the modeling. For me, as a Keynesian, this is one of the real problems that that novel identifies is we have to have an intention, not just a model, but an intention of what to do in order for those models to mean anything. Mm -hmm. The question I wanted to ask is like, what kind of models for interdisciplinary, not quantitative models, right, but qualitative models for interdisciplinary collaboration do you see this novel potentially generating or allowing us, inspiring us to maybe treat each other differently within not just the academy, but like you said, bureaucracies, right? The institutions that experts find themselves oftentimes competing over. 
Yeah. Can I answer that question real quick? And then I, I'm curious how other people would answer. But first, I don't know how much hope I hold out that economists want to engage in that conversation, but at least the economists I have talked to. <laughs> it's not that promising. I also want to go back to what Anna was saying. There's a lot I agree with, Anna. There's some things that I just don't agree with. Mm-hmm. The First thing is, I I think actually a narrative form that is really promising, that does do the kind of interdisciplinary work we're talking about, is creative nonfiction. It's not necessarily policy papers. It's not necessarily technical papers, but they aren't fiction. There's often a subjective figure, usually the reporter or journalist who's doing the work. Uh, It's long form and allows for deep engagement. It weaves back and forth between the personal and the impersonal. It gives us glimpses of how structures work, and it is always gesturing toward a totality. And it also borrows very heavily from novelistic conventions. And I think that's a form that we should not underestimate. And it's a form that's gaining incredible popularity. And I've even seen some some sales figures that suggest that, you know, Readers themselves prefer that form now over the novel. We don't want to dismiss that. The, the other thing I'd say about the quality of this work, I'm, I'm a big Kim Stanley Robinson fan. I've read him for years, and I'm a big admirer of the Mars trilogy. I think it's a, one of the really major achievements and underappreciated achievements of American literature. I also think if you're interested in climate change and Kim Stanley Robinson, actually, I think the novel to read is Aurora. It's a brilliant novel. And it totally upends deep-seated colonial fantasies about space exploration. It's profound. I think Ministry for the Future was a really hard read for me. I found it dull, (laughs) exactly for what you said, Matt. It's like going to a department meeting. (laughs) Maybe that was part of the point. But I think it's valuable for two reasons. One, I think it's actually telling other writers like, hey, we could do something different on this topic and it's showing us how to do it. Uh, it's a novel written for other writers, I think. And, and it, it, I hope it would inspire other writers to figure out how to do this better. I also think it does provide a really good and interesting way to facilitate a conversation interdisciplinarily so that it's in some ways also written not only for other writers, but also for critics. You know, like, hey, stop focusing so much on eschatology, mm-hmm. engage with science and economy and, and see the range of possibilities. And I think he's also writing it for us, for, for professional critics of, of literature. I think teachers too, right? Like I'm in teaching a large lecture with an oceanographer. A thing that I've been thinking about is how would I teach this novel as like the single novel in a course? And then what would I use as informing text to to, to teach it to maybe mid-level undergraduate students? I would want to do interdisciplinary texts and do things like Min does, bringing in other kinds of specialists from other disciplines to speak to the science that's here, to the journalism that's here, to the Bitcoin thing that I still have trouble with, right? In in pedagogical settings, it becomes a really powerful tool for conceptualizing this large compendium. It has a very inclusive intertextuality. Mm-hmm. He points you towards like the Chin paper. Maybe you should go read that. Mark Fisher, maybe you should go mm-hmm. read that. Certainly, obviously, Jameson, mm-hmm. Yevans. He doesn't hide what the inspirations are, right? And so I think you're absolutely right. Teaching a course where it is a central text and you intersperse it with a lot of text from a lot of different fields has a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. I just think this is one of the kind of conundrums of this novel, though, because 
it's a deeply thinking man's novel, right? Like it's a deeply intellectual novel in the sense of the history of the novel, in the sense of technocracy, in the sense of all the nerdery that goes on in it and the encyclopedic heteroglossic formality. And also because it has a political idea that is fairly intellectually based, which is that lots of solutions already exist and we're going to have a patchwork of them and we're going to coordinate them. And that's what people are already doing. And that's going to be our kind of best case scenario, not radical overall, (laughs) but like slow process. One of the core ideas in the book that is presented as indispensable is that of revolutionary violence. But it's it's almost unrepresentable, right? There's this kind of ambiguity about whether Mary, how much she knows about her own black ops, about how much the ministry yeah. itself is supporting these things. But it's, it's essential. Blowing up airplanes, blowing up pipelines, all this kind of coordinated, indeed violence and sabotage is essential for getting powerful people to realize that they have no choice but to be more answerable to the existing possibilities of cooperation and the existing technological counters to fossil fuel consumption and to endless profit seeking. The issue to me is like, Our ideas, even if we have dynamic, interdisciplinary ideas, is that where the place where the fervor and the commitment and the discipline to do these, this necessary power seizing, because it's really about convincing the billionaires that they can't have their planes, right? Mm -hmm. In this book, but also in general, it's like when you look at, you know, what the carbon footprint of the average person in the global south is who's suffering the effects much more catastrophically dangerously compared to the average person in the global north, right? It's like the rich people who need to change their habits. And there's way more poor people than there are rich people. But so how do you have that force? How do you make that impact? And I don't know if ideas, no matter how plastic and interdisciplinary and multiformal, are the way to do that. And I think that that's the problem of this novel is like, there's a reason he doesn't write about the black ops, you know, but he does. There's one chapter. Yeah. There's one moment where. And I, I feel like a thing that's really interesting about this novel for me as somebody who reads a lot of violent and, and, and catastrophic stuff, mm-hmm. a thing that's interesting to me are the economical ways that this novel distributes violence. And so there's the harrowing first, right. the opening, mm-hmm. absolutely harrowing. But then there's another one where Frank hits the guy with the board And then there's the one where somebody climbs in through a vent. And for some reason, I thought they were going to shoot the person, but they don't shoot them. They stab them and which has a different kind of level of violence to it. I think you're right that this 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 novel leaves violence unthought in ways that are stark in comparison to how it thinks through other things. Yeah. But I think the fact that it's there. Yeah, is indicative. I mean, this is a thing that we're all grappling with, that our author is grappling with, but it's there. It's there in this very sort of thoughtful and dispersed way that makes the unthoughtness of it visible, but also refuses to not have it be a part of of how we think about this. Right. I wonder also if maybe the the kind of clunky way in which violence is presented in the novel is actually not also its strength. We live in an incredibly violent culture, and we are constantly bombarded by scenes of violence that's presented to us for our pleasure and enjoyment. There's yeah. a constant aestheticization of violence. Yeah. And I've personally found it 
refreshing that the novel refused to do that. The violence yeah. happens off stage. Okay. You see its effects constantly everywhere, but but it's not there for our pleasure. Yeah, I agree, and I'm I'm going to offer one what I think is not a contradiction to any of this, but rather a kind of compliment. My interpretation of that was that what Anna calls the sort of pathways of revolutionary violence, and then also what we see more of the coordination of institutions and experts, that those are two equally necessary, but largely parallel forces. And that the only place in which they will overlap is that the latter has to persuade the former that the violence be carried out not in the spirit of vengeance, but rather with a kind of utopian aim. That the goal here is not to exact violence for the purpose of settling the scores of the heat wave or of the other atrocities that are taking place. Rather, the violence has to be carried out for the purpose of paving the way quelling the resistance to political, institutional, social change, the mitigation that is being pursued by the ministry, right? That sometimes their path needs to be paved by violence, but that violence has to be very selective. If the revolutionary violence we get is in the spirit of vengeance, what we're going to see is what Min described to us earlier. Scenario number three, where we have nationalism, reactionarianism, all, all the worst sort of case scenarios. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I see Robinson doing is trying to point us towards the fact that if violence is necessary, as a Keynesian, I'm kind of on the fence about that, mm-hmm. right? But if it is necessary, it has to be to some extent coordinated and it has to be very strategic it cannot be for the purpose of cosmic vengeance. Yeah. I had to read the first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth again for my graduate seminar. And so mm-hmm. it's sort of in my brain at the same time. And I think it runs counter to anti-colonial violence. And what's really interesting are the ways that post-colonial spaces are the ones that are at the forefront in this novel of grassroots efforts to transform communities and nations in sustainable ways and not necessarily the spaces that are, well, children of Kali, of course, but I don't know if it runs counter to or if it refines or makes the violence that Fanon talks about is necessary for the anti-colonial process. I wonder if, if it makes it more directed in those ways that it's not the founding of the nation or becoming citizens in a post-colonial sense that is the goal here, but rather combating climate change, securing the future that becomes the stake. And so I think there's something important here to think about, especially in terms of how anti-colonial discourse is coming back up in our contemporary moment to think through some of the ways that we're thinking about violence that this novel helps us to, again, refocus. Absolutely. Well, maybe this is the the moment to then come back to the form and function and, and psychology of eschatology. One of the things this novel is trying to resist is the tendency and our preference, right? Our taste for the apocalyptic and the post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's temporality, it's presentism, and it's refusal to narrate the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. even though 
the scenario it narrates at the beginning is very, very bad. Yeah. It, it also wants to reassure us to some extent it can get a lot worse than that. And there are ways to move forward without it getting worse, right? Do we have the capacity to scale back that taste for eschatology, that taste mm -hmm. for apocalypticism? How do we participate uh, within the academy in the resistance to eschatology? Mm -hmm. How do authors and culture makers and tastemakers participate in that resistance? This is a habit that has been with us for at least since the bomb, mm -hmm. accelerating, escalating, amplifying, I think, over that entire period of time. What is the path get away from that? to make possible a thinking and a planning and an imagination of a future that includes civilization, <laughs> that includes humanity, that includes, you know, progress, as much as those things are mythic. I think this is a crucial question, and I think it takes us back again to the form of what he's doing. So this book is less funny than New York 2140, but humor is really important. The atmosphere, the tone, the playfulness, the exuberance that it takes in different kinds of ideas and different kinds of language and in the kind of collaging effect of, of its juxtapositions and its short chapters and its playing with voices, like that there is an energy that is pleasurable, that is playful, and that is formally, you know, galvanizing, galvanizing, that is really essential for derealizing atmosphere, for derealizing eschatology or our kind of dystopian resignation, our romantic resignation. When I write about 2140, I say it's also kind of like a can-do attitude that is just really so, so different from the literary destruction and literary protocols of kind of evanescence and singularity and, and impossibility and ineffability, right? Again, that's why, to me, it's so important that this is a novel that is conspicuously activating itself in the tradition of the history of the novel and not the dilutions of creative nonfiction. I mean, I take Min's point very dynamically, but there's a reason that that kind of dissolutionist non-genre is the genre of our time. And it goes with the title floods. <laughs> and it goes <laughs> with various kinds of inability to take distance or to confirm that there are forms and structures and institutions and ways of coordinating and organizing and representing that actually are already available to us and would solve a bunch of these problems. I, I have to follow up on this in part because we're coming off of a season about work, the kind of meritocratic delusions of work and many of the mythologies and romanticizations and sentimentalisms associated with work are the sort of psychic force of capitalism, the sustaining force of capitalism, and therefore exploitation, precarity, imperialism, all the things that with which capitalism is associated. And when you describe the sort of can-do attitude of the bureaucrats in Ministry of the Future, and indeed when I read that can-do attitude, which I totally agree with your characterization, I can't help but be reminded a little bit of that romanticization, that they are addicted to work. They believe in the sort of Protestant ethic. Is it possible to shift that towards ends which are not exploitative, which are not 
imperialistic. What do you think human beings are but workers? Like, you know, it doesn't have to be the capitalist mobilization of work for the sheer purpose of accumulation in the hands of the few and destitution and immiseration on the many. But we make things, we do stuff, we get out of bed, like we grapple with the environment. Like we we don't just die right away from after we're born. Like we're busy. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, this is what the, the the novel sort of dramatizes for us too, right? It's also a kind of seizing of work for collective yeah. reasons, right? Like the work changes. Mary decides to ask Baden to activate a black ops section that we, or not activate, but like, she's just like, okay, go ahead. You have my approval, even though it's been happening before, but it's directing it in more collective ways towards the future and a future that is safer and sustainable for the world, at least from within the location of the ministry of the future for the future. Mm-hmm. That's one of the profound things about it as well, as we all reflect on what the hell are we working for? What is this work that we are doing in the middle of a climate crisis? I think one of the utopian things that it imagines is interdisciplinarity for a utopian purpose that can mount remediation in, in, in climate crisis. One of the things I just really admire most about Anna's work is her emphasis on work as a, a building up, you know, yes. this kind of collective shared yes. endeavor, yes. which is something I think is, is really important to hold on to, and which I think a lot of people who, especially people who are kind of transfixed, by the imagination of catastrophe and disaster have, I think, Mm. largely kind of given up on. Mm. Uh, And I find that really unfortunate. I'm I'm very critical of them in my Mm -hmm. own book. It seems to me to just turn back for a second to this question of eschatology that you raised earlier. And I'm not the only one who's saying this, but I do think that this sudden turn or fascination or fixation on eschatology is largely like privileged people in the U.S. and in Europe for whom these kinds of experiences are brand new. But for much of the rest of the world, it's like they shrug it off because, hey, we've lived with this for as long as we can remember. You know, this is nothing new for us. We've been dealing with this crisis or with a series of interlocked crises that you, you suddenly are worried about because it's finally arriving on your shores. The welcome apocalypse. I mean, so much of yeah. the, the apocalyptic television, particularly from the last decade, things like The Walking Dead, are appealing to an audience who somehow thinks that they will be better off after this happens, right? Which is, of course, absolute delusional perspective. A definition of dystopia that I heard recently, I think on social media that I really liked was dystopia is the narrative of upper middle class white people suddenly having to deal with experiences that other peoples have been experiencing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that suddenly a realization, oh no, it can happen to me. It's a really like complicated debate, and I would say in climate humanities, because I agree 100% that the transfixion with eschatology, that the glamorization of spectacular objection, that the obsession with dystopia, that those are all like formations that are about resignation and therefore privilege, right? But I also think that it is important to underscore that the forced mass extinction of human beings is structurally different than various forms of selective genocide and, you know, imperial extraction that have been visited upon specific peoples. I really do think that that's an important distinction. So like what we're facing is something at a different scale. But I, I've also been struggling with the recent work of Neil Alhuja, who's just been doing some really 
Fling work. I'm sorry, I probably butchered his last name. What he argues to some degree in his work, Planetary Specters, mm-hmm. which is on migration and climate, is that actually the, the eschatological imagination of extinction that is so associated with climate change bolsters far-right ethno-nationalists beefing up a militarization of the border and rationalizes and normalizes the treatment of migrants who often aren't actually moving because of extreme weather events. That He argues that actually the evidence for that is pretty tenuous, but that they are suffering from different aspects of fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm-hmm. that has immiserated their population and forced them to leave and seek things elsewhere. And then climate change is using an excuse to keep them out mm-hmm. at the border. Mm-hmm. To what degree then does the, the fascination with catastrophe, disaster, and so on actually make it easier for the far right, right. to normalize their policies of greater militarization of the border and its expansion geographically? So how do you have the dialectical account of what the catastrophe is? Absolutely. Again, that points, I think, to why it's so important that this book is not eschatological. Yes. Right? Why it has like a different of like what's happening every day and what endurance is and what survival is. I also think Min sort of points us towards Julie Klein's definition of interdisciplinarity is boundary consciousness, that the silos that we erect in the academy between science and the humanities, between the social sciences, those are formed of the same habits of mind that erect natural borders, that breaking down one is in some ways a project of breaking down the other. That's something that Ministry for the Future seems to to bear in mind, right? That this boundary consciousness is a habit of mind that takes place on several registers. To alleviate one right, is potentially to alleviate the other. The interest in ideas in the book gets back to this question of like, what's the right way to render the severity of extinction? Because to me, one of the most stark facts about ecocide is that carbonization of the atmosphere compromises our cognition, right? So no matter which country you're in, the parts per billion deplete and diminish our rational faculties, our patience, our communicative skills. So what is at stake is not only that the right-wing paramilitary and official state military and so on, ideologies and weapons and militarization of the border, that all of that is, is going on but also that our ability to combat that from some other perspective with arguments is limited because everybody's brain functioning is diminishing. Everybody's, even on high ground. It's like a swan song of ideas, (laughs) maybe. And that would be something that I feel like, again, is not eschatological to think about, but like we're losing our capacity to address things. We already have it idiocracy seems more and more like prophecy. The point that Anna just made is, I think, (laughs) you know, I I feel that so profoundly on super hot muggy days where Mm -hmm. I'm just so lethargic. I can't do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, even the AC blasting indoors, it doesn't help. Mm -hmm. And you know that these days are coming. There's going to be more of them. Uh, They're going to stretch on endlessly. Our heat waves are getting worse. And you just know that that's going to affect our cognitive abilities because we've already experienced that. 
this is really, I think, a huge imaginative challenge. How do we avoid all of the pitfalls associated with eschatology while still facing head on and with courage all the very, very bad case scenarios, many of which are already baked in. So we know actually that more heat waves are coming. No matter what, we know global average temperatures are going up. So there are some really bad things headed our way. And even that is funny to say because they're already here. We can see them all around us. And we probably aren't doing enough to try make the connections between things like the Russian invasion and climate change, which I think are really profound and clear. It doesn't get you know, talked about nearly enough and is used actually as an excuse to double down on the use of fossil fuels, which is just so perverse mm -hmm. and exactly what we would be wanting to fight against. Yeah. So, you know, this is a challenge, I think. How do we avoid the pitfalls of eschatology while facing head on the very serious problems we face? It's not a fully formed thought, but a thing that I've been thinking about, which surprises no one, is the placement of post-colonial characters in this in this text. Mm -hmm. Like that Mary Murphy is Irish is important. And I think there's something about already having had proximity to disaster, already having lived in apocalyptic spaces and have one's experiences be defined by world transforming events in different ways, whether they be climate ones or military or war-based ones. There is something about how this novel positions people who have had experience with apocalypse in all of the various ways that apocalypse gets talked about in positions of leadership, in positions at the forefront of remediation efforts that I think is, is useful for thinking about maybe not moving away from the eschatological, but to sort of understand that that has been a global reality for many spaces for a very long time. Like we're already living it. And I think the people with experience with it are the people who are at the forefront of things in this text. In our discussion of ends, I have to raise what was for me the biggest problem with the ending, or maybe just the most unsettling problem with the ending of Ministry for the Future, which is that for some reason, we conclude with a kind of septuagenarian romantic comedy between Mary Murphy and a character who like, I couldn't help thinking of as a kind of hybridization of like Richard Branson and Elon Musk and the villain from Pixar's Up. I'm curious, how did you experience this conclusion, which I found very unsatisfying despite my really deep affection for the novel as a whole? And why do you think we turn in that direction? To Min's question about the problems with desire for resolution in the novel, this seems highly relevant to this novel. Zurich too, I, I wanna append Zurich. Okay. Yeah. Zurich is and, and Switzerland is is treated in this novel. So like that's a that's a thing I want to append to that question. The flight to Scandinavia. And yes. Yeah, I, I see where you're going here. Yeah. I know, I know. I, it's a thing I, I, I can't reconcile. Mm -hmm. Relationships are going to make political will. Mm -hmm. There's a cheesy romantic resolution to a bunch of his books. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's 
force of comedy. <laughs> you know, like these are not disaster books, right? Septuagenary and sexuality actually is kind of sweet. And it's that in several of them too. It's not young people in love. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's there's a, a, a sacrinity to it, but there is a generic weight and there is the punctuation of of the the good, you know. Yeah the pleasurable, the collaborative. And, you know, the last tableau is them outside in Switzerland in this, like, carnival, and they're, like, eating, and there's music, and, you know. So it's not, like, in the bedroom. (laughs) I think it has a, I think there's a way to read it as, like, knowing what it's doing generically and kind of thinking about the force of galvanizing relationships for people taking action. I mean, Mark Twain says that the secret to satire is a strain of sentimentality. Maybe that's the secret to capitalist realism as well. Maybe I could also approach this from a slightly different angle. Uh, Last night, out of sheer curiosity, I saw the first episode of Serve the People, uh, which is the uh, TV show that Zelensky starred in that propelled him to become president of Ukraine. He plays a history teacher who goes on a political rant that a student records and it makes him so famous, it, it leads him to become elected president of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So it's a great story about how, you know, reality follows fiction. Take that, Aaron Storkin. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it, I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, but it's a, it's an awful show. Delightfully, delightfully terrible. It's manic. It tries to do, I mean, it's a pilot, so it's trying to do too much. You know, everything's filled up. It's like, you know, you could have taken that that story that you told in 48 minutes and made that the whole first season. And that would have been, you know, better and more satisfying. The characters are, are caricatures. There's lots of satire going on. Uh, the story begins actually with three men who are industrialists who control the country with corruption. And it starts with this scene of, of what I imagine is Kiev, uh, lit in blue. And then the three men are in the foreground talking and they're lit in gold. You know, it's like blue and gold. It's like the national flag. It's not a subtle movie. But I was trying to temper my aesthetic judgment of that with the fact that it is exactly satire wrapped in sentimentality. It is a naive political allegory. It's a pure work of fantasy. But it's because of these elements, maybe, this is what I'm guessing, that helped it to become popular. That said to people, hey, you know, actually, that's a world we want to live in where this is a possibility. Why can't we live in that world? Where serving the people is glamorous, right? Remember, ministry yeah. serve, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, Zelensky named his party Serve the People. Yeah. And from everything I've read and understood, you know, that we don't want to over-romanticize Zelensky himself, that he has mm-hmm. some problems and he's far from perfect. But he's acted courageously during the war. And the story of a naive political allegory being the thing that propels him into political office precisely around the issue of anti-corruption tells us something about the importance both of narrative and also of popular narrative forms, which we absolutely do not want to dismiss in our own aesthetic snobbery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We are all, to some extent, at least scholars of the same generation. Frederick Jameson has an outsized influence upon that generation. I would 
go so far as to say. And this novel is dedicated to Frederick Jameson, is engaged with his ideas, I think on a very rich level, beyond just the, is it possible to imagine a future outside of capitalism? I, I think its engagement with Jameson is far deeper than that. And I was hoping each of you would characterize how you understand that engagement and how you understand Jameson's influence. And perhaps in some cases, it may be a need to move beyond Jameson's influence or to, to put Jameson's influence side by side with another thinker or set of texts. I might just add real quick, Robinson has a PhD in English and his thesis advisor with Jameson. Exactly. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anna, do you want to get us started down this road? You seem like the logical place to be. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that the two of them share like a just stupefying literacy, you know, we're mm -hmm. voracious um, enthusiasm for different genres and different modes and just incredible dexterity and fluency. And I think that that, you know, is here in the way that this form metabolizes all the different kinds of discourses that we've been talking about. I also think, yeah, that they share a mood, right? Like the Jameson has been committed to dialectical inquiry, meaning that the history <laughs> that hurts is also the history of people struggling for freedom and that the literary record and the artistic record and the cinematic record should also be the record of efforts at solidarity and that struggle. And that people do try to make things better. Some people do. I think that that, that Jamesonian commitment to the possibilities of liberation that are, are, you know, mobilized by genres, not just utopian ones, or maybe least of all <laughs> utopian ones, right? But that's a commitment that is really, really vitalized in this book. I certainly find Frederick Jameson an important figure and probably less directly influenced by his work, though I certainly spent lots of time reading it, as I am by the people who he's influenced. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of secondary effect there. And his work is super productive and also just a model of productivity for scholars to keep on doing this work and staying engaged. Yeah. But I've also, you know, was trained by people who were critical of Jameson as well, who found his reading of the Weston Hotel and postmodernism, for instance, not as persuasive as others have. But his influence is clearly strong and, and important. Uh, but I, I guess also uh, I find myself looking for different intellectual conversations to be a part of, to supplement some of the work that I've been doing a lot of, you know, really engaged with. Uh, I've found Cedric Robinson's work on racial capitalism incredibly important and generative, and I actually just wrote something about it. <laughs> you know, I find Sylvia Winter really important. I find the whole discourse around settler colonialism really important. And when you start seeing things from those perspectives, especially around racial capitalism and settler colonialism, it adds something to the discussion around class relations and late capitalism that Jameson offered and maybe adds another component to it, a broader component that forces us to see uh, historical processes both in the long term uh, and on a global scale. I kind of humorously tweeted something, but it wasn't that humorous. I used to think when I was younger that there was something kind of not so exciting about early modern studies. Uh, and in particular, the 16th century felt like a dead zone, you know, of, of interest. And, and for the life of me now, after reading a lot of this scholarship, especially reading someone like Sylvia Winter in depth, I cannot 
understand how I could have believed that. The 16th century is one of the most exciting, vibrant, and interesting historical epochs that helped us to understand how we've arrived at where we are. Mm -hmm. So much was happening on a global level, on a global level. I mean, maybe my one critique of Robinson and also to some extent of Winter would be that that they're too focused just on the Atlantic, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that actually that this was also a history that was always teleologically oriented toward China and its and Europe's trade with China. And that, in fact, in the 16th century, Spain succeeded in reaching China through the Americas and that this was part of the rise of global capitalism that we've seriously understudied and underappreciated. So I think, you know, Jameson is important, but I also think there's lots of other scholars we should be in conversation with, people like Robinson, like Winters, and many, many others. And I think that that conversation is super rich and it's altering our sense of period and geography and is also offering us a, a really rich and textured understanding of the world we live in. I'm sort of glad Min brought up winter because that's 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 where I was going to go. I've I've gone back to winter recently too because I got asked to be on a roundtable at ASEX and I don't know what a contemporary is going to be doing at ASEX but it's on like Sylvia Winter's 18th century. And when I was a baby scholar, I like the first chapter of my book is on her novel and I spent a long time in graduate school trying to figure her out and I'm really excited that my post tenure brain can actually do some of that work in an effective way now. I've gone back to thinking a lot about Sylvia Winter and what Sylvia Winter can kind of tell us about who we are in this current moment, especially in terms of settler colonial relations. There's something about the unwillingness to give up the human as a category of being. That is very different, say, from Afro-pessimist imaginings that I, I, I had gone into before, that I think resonates with what Robinson is doing in this novel. There is something about what we need to understand about ourselves and our common status as human and our common status as human that has splintered in different ways because of things like global capitalism and colonization and the imbrication of those two things with each other. The thing that this novel made me realize was just how much I had been dwelling in profoundly pessimistic narrative territory. Mm-hmm. I was stunned by the possibility, like literally stunned by the possibility of of this novel to the extent that I had to find everybody who had like cynical takes on everything. Please read this and tell me how it's not utopian because it has to have this flaw in it. There is a, a sentiment here of the refusal to give up on the human as an enlightenment project. that this novel bears out. And it's shocking to see it in this 21st century moment that is so profoundly scary and embattled. But it's also really exciting to see the ways it's taking us back to scholars like Sylvia Winter to help us to sort of grasp why the project of the human is valuable and why we should try to save that. I answered this question in greater detail when I was on the High Theory podcast a few months ago. So if you want to hear my answer, you can go there. But I will just simply say that for me, this novel captures something about Jameson, which is a lesson that I think probably I need to learn just as much as anybody else, that we cannot disregard some of the institutions that we wish to abolish. Jameson holds up in dual power the idea of the military as an institution that may be able to be co-opted for social justice, right? I find that kind of 
hard to, to fathom, right? But I think Robinson is working on a similar project here in thinking about central banks as something that might be co-opted to just ends, right? Mm-hmm. And Ben said earlier, well, I don't know whether, you know, it's possible to imagine an economics with which we have anything to say to each other. I'm trying to imagine that. I, I ha- also find it hard, but I think that it's important to not dismiss these alternative forms of powers that we probably are you know, predisposed to think of as corrosive. So with that in mind, if you enjoyed Ministry for the Future, I would strongly recommend that you go read John Kenneth Galbraith's Economics and the Public Purpose. I would ask each of my guests to also give a book recommendation based upon this novel. Right? What are some things whether they are complementary or perhaps point in a different direction, what are some things that the readers of this novel might also benefit from? I can start with one. I referenced it earlier. It's an anthology that's from the Short Story Day Africa Prize, and it's called Disruption, New Short Fiction from Africa. I think a lot of the conversations about climate change and climate crisis and about who is doing the intellectual work it has a Western bias that this collection and the ways that it creatively navigates some of the very important formal and narrative terrain that we've talked about with Kim Stanley Robinson too is really important to put in conversation with this to sort of disrupt those binaries and those notions that you know the people who are who are currently subject to climate crisis in in a way that is more stark than others don't think about this in aesthetic or political ways, which is is just like not true. And this is one of those collections that is so varied and so many different authors that can speak to that. I can go next. Uh, I have two suggestions, one that's kind of uh, more accessible and the other, which is really challenging, but really good. I would highly recommend Elizabeth Rush's Rising Dispatches for the New American Shore. I think it's a really terrific book that's looking at how coastal communities in the United States have been responding to the problem of sea level rise. Very clear-eyed, very thoughtful. She's thinking about collaborations between communities, local communities of the state and federal levels, things that are already happening, the problems they're faced with. She has a terrific chapter on the Isle of St. Charles in, in Louisiana. I think that's probably the really important chapter. That's the island, by the way, that the film Peace of the Southern Wild is loosely mm-hmm. modeled on. She She's actually stayed in touch with the people there, and it continues to be a, a major a major problem and has a lot to do also with the, the state's treatment of indigenous populations. The other book or books I'd recommend are the, the poetry of Soma Sharif, whose work I just love. Uh, it's really difficult, formally very innovative and challenging, but necessarily so because she's really calling attention to the problems at the border and its highly racialized and militarized presence. Her first book, Look, is, is really brilliant. She's using a dictionary of military terms put out by the Department of Defense mm-hmm. and weaving the very high specialized language of the military into poetic form. It's it's brilliant. And she has a new book out, Customs, which I've read and want to go back and read and reread again, because I think it's it's such a challenging approach to thinking about our experience of the border and of customs control, of feeling sort of stuck at the border, thinking about where the border begins and ends. It's brilliant. Great stuff. Highly recommended. 
Thank you. So it's it's hard not to say that people should read an American Utopia because it is a companion piece to this book, right? Is a thinking about existing social forms that have different capacities and about how refunctioning them might be a more emancipatory enterprise than revolutionary scheming. So I really do recommend that. But also, I think another unspoken companion to this piece that came after it is How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. I just think it's really important for us to keep developing a vocabulary about tactics. Finally, I would just say that one of my favorite climate fictions that is really not doing eschatological romanticism, but really thinking about the causes of climate crisis and using the power of novelistic temporality and novelistic narration and novelistic setting in order to think the causes in car culture is Lydia Millet's How the Dead Dream. It doesn't take place in the future. <laughs> and it's and it's really trying to help us get in the habits of mind of what's the problem here? And it's not that complicated. We don't need elaborate new epistemologies to figure it out. We just need to stop. That was Anna Cornblue, Sherry Marie Harrison, and Min Hyung Song. I'm Matt Siebel. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash ministry for the future. Also, Please note some special ministry-inspired art from Meg Studer and Citation Studio. Check out more of their ministry-related designs on Instagram and Twitter at S-I-T-E-A-T-I-O-N-S. I leave you with the special theme of this season on the world's work from Dan Reeder. I got all, I got all the fucking work I need. I got all. work I need I got all the fucking work I need